within these very peaceful periods it's like sometimes you know just some uh something happens and people turn crazy they all long for war because mm -hmm. they want reality it's like and we had them before the first world war mm -hmm. everyone was eager yeah. all the young people they felt like they're wasting their lives mm -hmm. and pointless games uh, and they were eager for the reality of war mm. really figuring out what it like uh, uh, and there's, there's a momentum that that's carrying because it was coming from a peak of peace peacefulness yeah. parent productivity but it was too distorted uh, already mm. it's eerily similar to where we are today actually Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm gonna do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Rahim Takizadagan, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Thanks for having me back. Great to have you back on. Uh, last time we talked about a few books, um, mostly Austrian economics, complex systems. This time we're going into some work that you co-authored uh, with Mark Felix Otto. The title of this paper, which is the second paper you wrote on the topic, is The Praxeology of Coercion, A New Theory of Violent Cycles. And just, by, just to introduce you one more time for those who may have missed the last episode, you are an Austrian economist, you're an investor, and you're an OG Bitcoiner. Um, this paper is interesting. Um, you were sort of analogizing, I guess, business, Austrian business cycle theory 
which has to do with catalactics, right? The direct and indirect exchange of goods. But you're looking at something different, which is the exchange of bads. Um, so just to like, I'll just read the abstract and then I'd love to throw it over to you for just like a general overview of what this paper is about. The abstract reads, as the first application of the praxeological discipline of Kratics, a theory of the supply and demand of bads is developed. On this foundation, a violent cycle theory will be introduced in analogy to the praxeological business cycle theory, according to Mises. Central to this approach are the subjective perceptions of threats and possible bluffs regarding the backing of those threats. Such a violent cycle theory can explain the stability of structures of violence and reveal new interpretations of the long peace hypothesis. So could you just give us a plain English description of what this paper is about, and then also uh, just mention the long peace hypothesis and what that means. Okay, let's start with the last one. It's, uh, I think the, the concept uh, was turned by Stephen Pinker uh, in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, uh, and he's describing pacifying tendencies, and he thinks like counterintuitive history of humankind becoming ever more peaceful. Uh, as opposed to our perception, maybe. We may feel like we're on the brink of a third world war. Uh, so he thinks that, that that's wrong, that generally that there's a positive trend. Uh, and he tries to explain that. Uh, and uh, in my paper, I try to give an explanation why probably our perception is closer to the truth. And uh, even though the empirical facts may speak for Stephen Pinker's perspective, I think the normative conclusions are not correct. Uh, and uh, I think it's fairly similar to uh, the financial landscape, uh, uh, in particular if you're critical of the current uh, fiat financial order. It seems like it's working pretty well if you look at the empirical facts, like everyone who was predicting impending doom uh, has been proven wrong uh, so far. Uh, but still, I mean, there's this undercurring uneasiness uh, about structures and the sustainability of structures, and I think that applies as well to the question of war and peace. Uh, mm. So I, I think that's where the an analogy comes from. Uh, so lots of uh, difficult terms I use there. It's just, I mean, if you want to make clear from which side you're approaching something, sometimes it's better to coin new terms so mm. that you don't have all the baggage uh, with it. Of course, praxeology is not a coined life term, uh, uh, coined. Uh, it's uh, Mises who used it. He was not uh, the one who originally proposed it, but he used it. It hasn't really been picked up. Uh, he basically he thinks that economics is not the right or is a misleading categorization of thought. Uh, mm -hmm. So praxeology is about understanding human action. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it, it has certain like epistemological approaches to it. It's a very realist approach to understanding human action and taking human beings seriously at something else than just being particles. Uh, requiring a different methodology. And then uh, he developed one area of praxeology the most, and he called it catalectics. Also, he didn't come up with the term. He proposed it. He thought it's a useful term. Hayek agreed, but it hasn't been picked up widely, so most mm -hmm. people won't have heard the term yet, and mm -hmm. it seems very difficult. 
why you use it? I mean, it's Greek terms. Uh, we don't associate much with them, but uh, they have uh, a meaning, uh, and the meaning is very fitting. Uh, Rexology is the logic of action, mm -hmm. and uh, catalytics uh, comes from catalatein, which is to exchange, uh, but also to turn foes into friends. Uh, mm -hmm. So create a society through exchange. Uh, and that was a big insight of social sciences that uh, there's a way to cooperate that does not necessitate that we are homogeneous in our goals, beliefs, and so on. So we can cooperate with people that are foreign to us that are mm. not part of our tribe. And that's the part of catalectics. Uh, so historically, it's not the most important part of praxeology. But from its impact, it is of outsized importance. That's why it's the best developed part of praxeology is really understanding the logic and implication of interpersonal exchange. Mm. And then all the phenomena that arise out of it, money, mm. capital, entrepreneurship, mm. uh, uh, production, uh, almost everything that we now consider economics mm. uh, is part of catalectics. But of course, I mean, uh, human nature is... Not just that we are the most cooperative species, uh, also we are fairly good at cooperating for violent goals. Uh, of course, violence is part of our nature. Mm -hmm. It's a large part of private nature, mm -hmm. uh, something very natural. Uh, it's a way to reach your goals, uh, but it's not always the best way to reach your goals. Uh, but still, I think it makes sense to apply the approach of praxology, very realistic, down-to-earth understanding of human action and the choices we have to take and focus more on the less catalectic and more coercive phenomena. Mm. I think cratics uh, is a good uh, term. I haven't coined it. Uh, mm. it's, it's been around. And of course, uh, cratic we still have in democratic uh, and kratiin. It's also a Greek word. It's the opposite of katalatiin. Mm. Is you want to control something uh, from top down more or less. I want to have something and I want to use you as a tool to get it. Um, and uh, I... I don't accept that you have a free will and then do it by choice. If you don't do what I want, then mm. I'll make you do it. Uh, and of course it works. Uh, it's not always the best strategy and there's a discovery process of the historical cultural discovery process. Still, it's an important field and I think we should look into it. Mm -hmm. And Mises himself, he proposed and he knew that catalytics is not the only thing. So he said as a research program, he suggested uh, People should look into other fields of praxeology. And then Rothbard uh, came up with the concept of this like theory of cursive uh, phenomena and mm -hmm. praxeology of cursive phenomena. Uh, and um, our papers are a first effort to try to <laughs> apply the praxeological method to coercive phenomena. Interesting. Um, so praxeology is being the total domain of studying human action, catalactics, studying the cooperative side, cratics, which we'll talk about today, is the coercive side. Mm -hmm. And I'll read another excerpt here. You wrote that in analogy to catalactics, we can distinguish suppliers and counterparties regarding bads. The supplier of a bad pursues a marginal utility on his part by making the counterparty act in a certain way through promising a bad in case of that counterparty's refusal. Critical herein is the specific and subjective expectation of the ensuing damage, the marginal disutility, rather than some objectively quantifiable harm. 
In particular, the expected disutility depends on the counterparty's situation. The promise, i.e. the threat, to kick a paraplegic's leg might lead to a smaller expectation of disutility than is the case with one with a non-paraplegic person. So we're, it's, these are still, rather than exchanging, I, so when we exchange consensually, we're creating value or utility, I guess. But in a coercive exchange, it is someone's issuing a threat, effectively. You know, give me your lunch money or else. And then it is the, the so that would be the bully, I guess. And then the counterparty, the, the victim, would be the person that's deciding, right? Like, is this bully actually going to make good on the threat? And do I value the lunch money more than I, the disutility I'm going to receive by him beating me up or whatever the thing is? Yeah, is it, that, it's two things uh, uh, we did there is applying two elements of the praxeological method. That's mm-hmm. subjectivism and marginalism. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, it's a bit counterintuitive because we assume that like the world is objective and of course there's objective reality but for human action it's important how we perceive the world uh, and it was a great insight of Menga he realized that good is not something objective it's a relation that mm-hmm. we have to the world mm-hmm. of course it's not entirely arbitrary neither uh, so you had like the steps what makes a good a good and first it's a need uh, that's of course is different for different people we have patterns of people have similar needs uh, so we can observe patterns but that makes us generally generalize prematurely about how everyone must have that those needs right. uh, and it can be misleading but it can be helpful if you look at large numbers of people so a, a lot of the actual coercive things of course you can see patterns like physical harm and mm-hmm. most people would react adversely to a tendency of disutility and mm-hmm. uh, but uh, in the essence you have to generalize it uh, and see okay it depends on like people ranking options of the world and states of the world and then we have higher ranked preferences and of course we have preferences which rather try to uh, we rank the lowest or lower than almost everything else in a certain context but it's all context dependent it's based on perception and then a need alone is not enough Uh, there must be a causal relation somewhere But then there's a third step and that makes it even more complicated. You need to have the knowledge about that. So, of course, we can have wrong knowledge about wrong causalities Mm. and there can be true causalities and us not knowing it. So, Mm. something may harm us, but we don't know. We Mm. are eating kind of food. We think it's good for us. It harms us in long term. If we don't know, we are not going to change our actions. Right. but there can be good causality, something really being good for us, or you offer me something and it's really good for me, but mm-hmm. I don't know it. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know you, maybe even. I don't know that you have it, that mm-hmm. you're offering it. Uh, and uh, that's uh, crucial about the approach of the Austrian school. It helps us explain a lot more things that really uh, are the base of our action can be deceptive. Uh, there's a lot of like alignment. It's not just organizing people. It's figuring out something about other people learning from other people and air have the freedom to air mm. because usually it's the only way to find out that something is not good for you in the long run you get to try it out because mm. when who are you going to trust we are not even trusting our parents sometimes we just got to try it even if daddy says no you <laughs> shouldn't that makes it interesting you're going to find out uh, uh, and, and that makes it I, I think like a complex very interesting process the kind of discovery and we have that with good so it was already crucial inside like trying 
explaining why people value things differently. Mm. Because usually if we don't understand how people value things, we tend to moralize. We can, then we say either, oh, they are greedy, oh, they have bad needs, that's why they like it, or they're stupid. It's like, mm. oh, you're not educated enough, that's why you want to have mm. uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, so that was the value approach, like try to understand first. Uh, and the same applies, of course, with harm and bads. Uh, uh, it may be that uh, the patterns are more, I mean, apply to more people. I mean, we're very physical in our existence as well. So it makes sense that some kind of intrusion, our physical integrity may for lots of people be harmed. But then interestingly, most of the coercive structures don't show that. Mm. You don't have like constantly someone hitting you and right. still it can be a very coercive yeah. structure. I mean, even slaves, usually you don't have to beat them. It's really mm -hmm. the worst slave or is it constantly beating slaves? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so it can be a have a slave who like, looks like he's living a perfectly peaceful life mm -hmm. and still be within a coercive structure and system. Uh, and that's with economics as well. It's not always obvious where the value comes from, where the value creation comes from. There can be deception. There's a lot of like, mm -hmm. a lot of value creation can just be like people learning about something. That's why people have such a hard time understanding marketing. It's like mm -hmm. if you're, oh, it's already been produced. Like, what are you adding? Mm -hmm. Like talking about it, mm -hmm. telling people. But it can be like the, the, the biggest increase in value because someone becomes aware of it. Yeah. And if it's there, you're not aware of it. It's like zero importance. Uh, uh, to your life, so so that's like apply, applying the first methods here and 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 seeing okay, we gotta think about that in that sense as well. And it's not always objectively clear uh, how coercive structures work; they may not be visibly harmful mm -hmm. uh, in working. And it's you know when we talk about goods, catalactics, we have markets, mm -hmm. but that term doesn't exactly fit for cratics mm -hmm. because it's not consensual um and so this is actually where you get the term which i'll read the excerpt you said the market for bads is no market at all at this point another analogous term would be necessary the term market is derived from the latin word mercatus which in turn stems from mercs a product or good bads in latin would be malay Mercus, 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 so that one could form the concept of a mal market, but that would probably be too much of a play on words. Let us stay with the Greek language. Catalactic for a market order, cratic for a coercive order, whereby the study of the first is called catalactics, while the study of the second is denoted as cratics. This contrast resembles Frank Oppenheimer's juxtaposition of the political and the economic means. The former would be cratic, the latter would be catalactic. So, and I often say this on the show that there's like two ways to acquire things or wealth in the world. One is making, which is like creating it or trading with others consensually, or there's taking, which is confiscation, theft. Yeah, That would be the the, the economic means is the making, the political means is the taking, the economic means is catalactics, the political means is the taking, is the cratics. Yes, but a lot of the making is invisible to most people. Mm -hmm. There was one inside of the Austrian school is a capital structure, and the capital structure is like an iceberg. You only see the tip of the icebergs, like the consumption goods, the mm -hmm. readily available stuff. Mm. And the most interesting part is really hidden to most people. Mm -hmm. A lot of the making is invisible. 
um, a lot of the taking is invisible as well. Uh, I usually only see the icebergs or really the big kind of structural cursive setups uh, have a huge hidden component uh, within them. And we want to understand the process there. Uh, and uh, a lot of interaction is now that we like we don't deal with people as if they're inanimate. We want to have them working corporately the, towards our ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and we figured that out uh, pretty soon. Uh, that's it's easy. I mean, we can take things, but usually it's just easier to just say, "Okay, give it to me, please," uh, mm-hmm. and I'll just take it. Uh, and then um, it's uh, there are cases, of course, where I really care about you, and you care about me, and and uh, because we are related, we are friends, and then it's, it'll be obvious. Okay, you want to have sure, I'll give it to you. But the more we have to do with foreigners, which we maybe only meet once, uh, that's mm-hmm. not that kind of logic. You don't approach someone and say, hey, I would really like to have that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can you give it to me? Uh, of course, we can take it immediately. It's just not, not such a good strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we figure out that really this intersubjective uh, exchange-like processes take up a larger part if we interact with foreigners. So it's we don't have that much other regarding preferences, that's how we call it in the mm. paper. It's like I, it's part of my preference structures. I like you, therefore I like you having that. Mm. Uh, uh, but the more we have to do with foreigners, the, in the larger aggregations we live, the more we are connected through the digital channels, maybe to other people, uh, the more we meet more and more people, the less we can rely on kind of other regarding preferences. Uh, but still, we don't need to be enemies. We, you can be a means to my ends, uh, and it can be okay for you. But also, of course, you can be a means to my ends, uh, and not in a way that you prefer because I'm not offering you a good mm. in exchange. But still, I need your participation. So a lot of the violence that's extractive. Mm-hmm. Of course, we have like uh, violence that's that has other regarding preference. I hate you, mm-hmm. therefore I want to harm you. Mm-hmm. That happens, but mm-hmm. I think it's overrated in its importance. A lot of the harm doesn't happen because people hate other people and right. want to harm them. It's like, you are in my way. I wouldn't want to harm you and need to harm you if I can just take what I want. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's why, of course, lots of criminals, they try to avoid this kind of confrontation. So I'd rather you not being home. If you're home, okay, that's your fault. Mm-hmm. Or unless you're in my way. Um, so um, there's uh, quite quite little of violence that we can explain for really preferences that people are evil and they hate us and that's why they want to harm us. Okay. Uh, a lot of it really comes from the idea, okay, I can help have you participate in my good. Uh, I couldn't find some way that's catalectic uh, where it's also fit for you. So I want you to participate in my good in, in another way. And so it's a question, how can I change your actions? What can I do that you change your actions? Uh, and we'll see that a lot of this is actually speech acts, even by criminals. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of the hold up situation. Mm-hmm. Um, your money or your life, that's a kind of alternative offered. It's a choice situation. It's a speech act, mm-hmm. no physical harm done. Uh, and I want your participation. I want you to reveal... <laughs> your belongings. I want you to pass them over quietly. I want you to cooperate. Cooperate and you won't be harmed. Mm-hmm. And a lot of coercion really is along uh, those lines. So it's intersubjective and it's a kind of, of interaction. It's an interaction. 
uh, it, which has its analogies to the very large part of catalytic interaction where we want your part of the participation, need the participation of other people mm -hmm. to further our ends. Makes sense. So I'm starting to see almost like markets as this, uh, it's a collaborative structure, mm -hmm. right? Where we're collaborating via consent. So that's showing one side of human nature. We can cooperate both consensually, you know, work towards different ends together, different projects, et cetera. But occasionally people come to cross purposes or you, you're in my way or you're, you're impeding me from moving towards my aim or my goal. And then you might have more of a cratic situation, right? Where you need to influence this person in a way they might not, they may not prefer, but it's a way that you prefer. Yeah. And so the other side of human nature we have i guess the state as like a coercive structure and are these two like they're oppositional forces in a way mm -hmm. but they're two sides of human nature so are we we often talk in bitcoin like oh you know end the state all this stuff but are we always do our markets and states mm -hmm. mutually interdependent in that way and that they're just sort of manifesting two sides of human nature no, they have a substitutive effect so, as mm. well. So catalectics can replace cratics mm. because it makes uh, catalectic strategies ever more rewarding. Ah. Um, and of course, cratic strategies can destroy catalectic ways of win-win mm. cooperation. So they're actually substitutes in a way. It's um, kind of either or, but not in the sense like a utopia, it'll always be there. So you're right, mm -hmm. they're both like rooted in human nature. So uh -huh. the kind of political means that Oppenheimer used the term, which would be a bit clearer, like is this is the credit means uh, we could say that's, of course they work, uh, they have preconditions of working. They are very close to our nature. We can, we discover that early on that some kids employ these strategies and it's a learning process to figure out, okay, like directly taking something, fighting about it. Sometimes it's not the best strategy uh, because it's a kind of physical domination game uh, that, uh, of course, there we are different and, and we've been uh, different. Uh, so for some, it can be a winning strategy. But then usually, like we realize that, that uh, there are alternatives and someone will push us in these alternatives if they make sense. But that's a cultural context. So within the culture that has not discovered catalectics, they would really potentially endorse that kind of taking what's yours mm -hmm. as a sign of virtue, like you're pressing strength in a sense. Uh, but of course, no society could do that within your own society. So it's usually like the foreigners are treated as a different group of organisms uh, mm -hmm. uh, and and there it's good that kind of violence is good because and, and I think that's that's part of how how we've grown up in evolution a lot of the cooperation was cooperation against other human groups right uh, so of course violence is closely linked to cooperation so the cratic and the catalytic sites they are closely linked in our <laughs> evolution wow. uh, it's uh, in a way, but it's not unescapable because they are actually substitutable uh, to a certain degree. Uh, and it has always been the hope uh, of many economists of the Austrian school that catalytics could replace almost all or all cratic behavior. Yeah. Uh, probably not all because you always have like this psychopathic uh, sure. 
uh, minority and then maybe like other regarding preferences like you know, some people really hate other people so much and usually it's like those very close love hate things like yeah. i really fed off the passion passion yeah um yeah, and it does seem, and I guess this is where that hope from the Austrian school stems from, and yes. that catalactics is more rational, perhaps, and that if we optimize for uh, a catalactic society, we are actually maximizing productivity, yeah. which accretes to everyone, right? Yes. Uh, and innovation, discovery of knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at the line from Atlas Shrugged jumps out at me here. She says something like, when force becomes the standard, the murderer wins out over the pickpocket. So like when you start, when you're not optimizing for catalactics and you start to drift into cratics, things degenerate quickly. Yeah. And eventually there's nothing left to steal, right? It's like you, if you take it to the extreme, yeah. well, productivity collapses and you just, uh, what does she say? Uh, your society disappears and uh, a, uh, a bunch of ruin and, and murder, basically, you know. Yes, but that's not the worst thing about it. Uh, that's actually a good correction by reality. It's like, yes, destruction destroys and plunder plunders, mm -hmm. and eventually you run all the things to plunder. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's like the stationary bandit dilemma is mm. <laughs> eating up all the resources. Uh, and then violence is costly. Uh, that's another thing. Mm -hmm. so, uh, usually, uh, it's it's uh, relative to other ways to get other people do what you want. It's mm -hmm. a costly strategy. So we see a lot of like short-term orientation can lead to criminal mm -hmm. behavior, and there's really less reasonable in the sense you don't you are not capable intellectually to see the end result. Mm -hmm. uh, so of course we have kind of link of people that are unable uh, to really uh, see that or have an abstract thing that's in the future and, and immanentize it at the moment and, and, and have it in, in their perception. They just see the short-term gain. Uh, but generally, this costliness helps to avoid that violence takes over in societies, mm. unless, of course, we can cooperate and then, then we suppress violence within our tribe and then we let it out on on the others and specialize right. and and that's of course how coercive structures uh, then ended but the tribes that specialized uh, in violence and were re really good at also realized that ruling uh, then over a larger group of tribes it would get really costly i mean mm. again like control everyone mm -hmm. standing with your sword uh, behind every person who's not now an enemy right because you want to plunder you want to enslave uh, so that's difficult so they realized okay even if you have violence, uh, you should somehow find a way to make people behave as if you were always able to harm them physically, even mm -hmm. though you can't at the same time. And this is a temporal aspect that also we see in catalactic exchange. We cannot always have direct settlements. Mm -hmm. And that's really uh, the term to apply here. Uh, sometimes we can immediately have value for value exchange. Mm -hmm. so it was like a kind of gap. And it can, can be far fairly large if it's complex projects. We cooperate together. It only in the end we'll see the result if it worked out. Mm -hmm. So there's a temporal component to it. That's why promises are so important. And that's why contracts have become mm -hmm. so important. Uh, that's why even like writing uh, comes out of catalectics. It mm -hmm. comes out of keeping track of promises. Uh, 
and, and, and a lot of the institutions and the intellectual capacities for these institutions actually come from the problem of, of temporal uh, alignment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have the same issue with violence. Right? Uh, violence is settled, but it's not always settled and it's not settled uh, immediately. Uh, and sometimes it's never really checked if the violence is there. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and that's this whole concept of threats. I'm threatening you. Of course, I expect you to cooperate under that threat and do what I want. I don't expect that I should have to execute the threat. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's, it's uh, I think, similar to a kind of offer uh, we make. Uh, and so we can have similar deceptions uh, or, or like frustrations in economic behavior. We, we saw a promise, but of course, it's all our subjective knowledge and expectation and then maybe a trust uh, issue as well. Or you have a backstory, is it plausible, will be able to settle? Uh, but it's only in the end, after everything has been settled, that we figure out if we've made value, if it was actually good, mm-hmm. if it was profitable or not. Uh, and then we adopt constantly our whole production structure to this discovery process. I mean, mm-hmm. what created value in the long term. And the more innovative, the less certain we can be about that. That's mm-hmm. more with capital. And the temporal mismatch problem becomes immensely important with capital. Because capital structures mm-hmm. can be like for years in the making, sometimes decades. Right. Uh, and then it's only finally you can like settlement by real customer. Yeah. Uh, in the end, or the, the the right amount of customers in the end, and and then it's verifying all your entrepreneurial assumptions, and a lot of assumptions don't get verified. Uh, so I think that's a very large part of catalytic economy, and it's an underrated part of coercive orders. It's not direct violence, not direct right. execution. It can't all be there. All this violence can't be there in the economy. It can, can't be that all the value is created that has been promised. So there has to be this discovery process. Uh, and uh, I think that explains a lot about coercive structures emerging, breaking down, and even like even those who are specialists now in coercion, uh, they realize, okay, we can now we have to economize our violent means uh, in a way. Because right. it's, we depend on the promises. We depend on the acceptance and expectations of other people. And it's better to depend on that because mm-hmm. we don't want to always execute uh, or immediately execute. Uh, that's what will make it cost very worthwhile. Right. And, and this is, I'm sure this lends itself to the reason why empires that have expanded tend to, they eventually yes. economically implode, right? Yes. Isn't it? What happened with uh, the Roman Empire, I believe. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it becomes I, I very, think, uh, very expensive to project power over yes. such a large domain. Yes. yes, but it also explains like the tendency you have certain tribes, certain groups of people really specialize in violence. So they're, mm-hmm. ter- they're terrifying. Uh, usually it's the more mobile mm-hmm. pastoralists, uh, mm-hmm. really good at killing animals. They are really good at killing men mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as well. Uh, but then when they settle down and they control large areas, they change and they change physically. They mm-hmm. fat. <laughs> they sit in their palaces. Right. Uh, and it's a different kind of breed. Like the grandson already is very different <laughs> yeah. with his grandfather because they don't, of course, they can rely on that like immediate execution of violence. They'd be like entrepreneurs of violence and yeah. then investors of violence, uh-huh. venture capitalists of violence, <laughs> uh, and they're ever more distant yeah. uh, from the actual like production <laughs> right, right, of right. bads. Uh, right. 
Uh, so they, they run like the multinational violence structure yeah. uh, and it changes and, and they can fail. It's uh, more it roundabout, right? Yeah, uh, like, very roundabout. like the roundabout con- uh, production structure you said doesn't really check until the goods are delivered yes. to the customers. Like you're sort of betting that the demand will be yes. there. Yes. And then the, the check and the credit side is, well, who's going to actually check the threat, right? Yes. What if I don't pay the taxes or whatever the thing is? It's very interesting. So, yeah, these are long temporal dislocations too in these structures. Yes. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, Like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, It's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's really a a brand-new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Let me ask you this, and this is not directly in the paper, but just a general question. Are there bright lines between let's say persuasion, psychological manipulation and coercion. Mm-hmm. Like I, yes. for the last one, I would think like coercion is like once you physically do something to someone, right? Uh, I guess it doesn't have to be physical though, because it could be this a theft of property, right? You could just steal their lunch without them being physically harmed. That would be coercive. Are there bright lines between these three? Because on the persuasion end, I see that being sort of catalactic advertising, marketing, on the coercion end, that's more cratic statism. Is this just a, a continuum or are there bright lines? There are hardly ever clear cut lines uh, in anything in complex <laughs> phenomena, unfortunately. And of course, it's just one approach. There's a mental model, I think, that, that comes from reality and makes sense, but, but now leads to challenges, ethical challenges. It mm. may seem, it may make seem some things that from the ethical perspective are very clear cut, become more diffuse. Because, mm. uh, of course, because we have this knowledge component there, and, and that's a part of Austrian economics, uh, which sure, I, sometimes it's really hard to tell 
if it's you not knowing something, you being deceived about it. Mm-hmm. When is it deception? Who's the scammer? Mm-hmm. That's not always obvious to tell. I mean, mm-hmm. you can be a like, very convinced entrepreneur. And then, I mean, afterwards, of course, everyone knows it, it failed. So it was like a failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but does it really tell us if, what was his intention? So we need to ask, like, what did he want to do? <laughs> right. Uh, was he, and then there are good reasons to be convinced of things that don't work out. Uh, but also, we have, of course, people deceiving. So generally, libraries, if you uh, knowingly deceive something, you're actually. Uh, Proposing a bad, you know, and like mm-hmm. the, the end result will not be a good, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, there can be a way, and that's the systematic distortion. When you actually think, yeah, I promise you something, uh, I think it'll, it'll work out in the end, but mm-hmm. if you believe in it, then you have to believe in it, uh, and uh, you won't really check. Maybe you forget about it in the end. So it's not really scamming. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you won't see it as being harmed. Everyone does it if I'm the one doing it and those distortions we can see in the market and that's now the interesting field and that's the cycle so everything like that uh where we have corrections and, mm-hmm. and like we talked about the violence structure changing that cyclical and we want to understand where those cycles come from that's, that's mm-hmm. basically the business cycle theory um and uh it was it's, it's really hard to explain uh, because is it like endogenous is something that that we air collectively and of course there's some mm-hmm kind of we copy other people uh, mm-hmm. and we run along but usually there's a reality check uh, and and the more and catalytics lends itself to reality checks but also critics so that's that's a similarity i think with violence is something very real uh-huh. and you really got to show up for something mm-hmm. and it's a reality check mm-hmm. and the same is like with the real production or of something like that's uh, causally can change something to the mm-hmm. better for someone it's a reality check right um but sometimes we have phases where it seems like the reality checks are not happening mm-hmm. uh, and then it becomes so diffuse uh, and it seems like people he's a good guy he's not really mm-hmm. scamming mm-hmm. but oddly enough there was a larger number of entrepreneurs of which he was a part of which people were surprised they couldn't provide value in the end Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's that's behind uh, the business cycle. It's a lot of entrepreneurs are at the same time, mm-hmm. but it's not just because they go along and do what any, everyone else is doing. It's a kind of systematic distortion, not having reality checks at the time when mm-hmm. you should have them. And I've got one way in the market of a reality check is settlement. Yes. Right. Final settlement for payment of money. Right. So any distortion in the monetary structure should lead to problems of settlement and less settlements and unclear settlements and layered less reality checks less reality checks yeah. and so you can have that kind of behavior where it looks right. like oh there's no clear cut line like seems like and some people think oh all entrepreneurs are scammers now it's like my impression like everyone who's selling something on mm-hmm. facebook it looks mm-hmm. also scammy mm-hmm. and i say yeah but usually it's a sign of distortion it's it's mm-hmm. not the function of the entrepreneur to do that and, and most may be really pragmatic and, and yeah uh, entrepreneurs, it's a sign of distortion. Hmm. And I think we can see the very same thing uh, in violence, uh, in people actually not being able to produce the kind of bads they depend mm-hmm. on and the belief uh, depending on them really being able to do that. So then you can have like large enslaving structures 
where the people are actually doing the controlling of the slaves I'm really that capable right <laughs> like they're fat and yeah. uh, and and lazy and, yeah. and it's just like everyone just goes along and then you wonder why hasn't there been that kind of reality check yeah. uh, of all slaves realizing okay hey it's just that guy there's <laughs> 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 so many <laughs> what's going on here right. yeah uh, thinking of like Kim Jong-un, right? Just yeah. some little fat guy controlling yeah. so yeah. many people. Yeah. Um, okay, I want to read another excerpt here. And I thought this, I just finished the book Atlas Shrugged a few months ago. And I thought this kind of described it really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wrote, let us clarify that example conceptually. Production, quote unquote, production of bads means the intention, preparation, and propagation of harm to other people to the benefit of the quote-unquote producer at the lowest cost possible. In this case, a threatening appearance could constitute a quote-unquote factor of production. When a bully runs into a classmate who has no willingness to evade, an angry look alone could be enough to be recognized as the offer of a bad, whereupon the transfer of snacks may follow without resistance amounting to the immediate contracting in this coercive exchange. This would typically lead to a marginal rise of the production of bads, both because the producer of bads will be encouraged to further employ his quote-unquote production factor, and because successors may appear who recognize how easy it is to obtain other people's goods. If in a given quote-unquote market, all the quote-unquote buyers of the bads i.e. those who give away the demanded goods exhibited zero willingness to evade, the production of goods would not be profitable anymore because even the smallest bads would lead to their uncompensated transfer. Such a society would break apart very quickly because all those quote-unquote buyers would run out of resources. A short period of absolute nonviolence, during which violence was not necessary to break the will of the quote-unquote buyers, would yield to a period of violence among the producers of bads. So again, that whole idea of, in this case, when people are not resisting at all, then the bully can just come in and say, give me all your stuff. Yes. And, and in, at the margin, it's more profitable to be a bully. Yeah, they have more as like the supply right. goes up of the kind of threats because other people who are marginal bullies, like they would be, if yes, they figure out how easy it is. And there's no profitability to producing yeah. because everything you produce yes. gets taken by the bully, right? Yeah. So the, the wolves eat all the sheep basically, but then eventually there's no sheep left. Yes. And then so what breaks out is a war among the wolves effectively. Yes. And that is what is described in Atlas Shrugged, right? Like yes. it shows this whole yes. situation playing out. And then again, that quote that now comes to mind, she says, when force is the standard, the murderer wins out over the pickpocket. And then she goes on to say, and then eventually your society disappears in a spread of ruins and slaughter. Like that's that's what you're describing here, theoretically. Yes, yes. so peace can be actually a bad thing. It's like a pacified mm-hmm. society. <laughs> can be like the full play to an extremely violent one. Mm. And it's, it's the, the looters have run out of prey mm-hmm. and they eat each other. Uh, and it's, it's terribly, it's, it's bloody. It's, it's a zero-sum uh, survival violence. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and that's the issue. So, uh, and, and that's also my reply to the long piece hypothesis. I mean, how can we be sure 
that it's not a kind of pacification that has happened. Mm. It's just lull people into obedience uh, that then when there is a need for correction and some settlement comes, it'll be mm. just terrible kind of violence you wouldn't have needed in the first place mm. without the pacification and, 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 and uh, acceptance of coercive structures that are not sustainable in the long run because eventually they, re- they, they run out of producers. Yeah, when the reality check comes. But when the reality check comes, if there's been a long peace, you've had a lot of divergence between reality and the existing order. So the, the reconciliation is more extreme, yes. more violent, yes. more yes. explosive. And most people, of course, will focus on that and say, oh, that's the bad thing. That's we've got to avoid. Yeah. The reality check, reality check is really a terrible thing. And of course, it looked terrible in the history books. Yeah. And you have all this adverse like, interpretation. Uh, mm-hmm. And the, the same in economics is like the worst periods, uh, praxeologically, are the boom periods because they lead to distortions. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's, of course, just when like everything is flourishing and it's right. growth and it's great. And then the recession is like, oh, everyone wants to avoid that. Mm-hmm. And then so have a recession is terrible. But of course, that's the approach of uh, Austrian business cycle theories. And no, that's the good stuff. Yes, <laughs> you yeah, need right. to have the reality check. Yeah. If you like postpone it <laughs> yeah. in the future, it'll uh, be worse and worse. Yeah, if you want to accord yourself to what is true, you need reality checks, right? Otherwise, you, you don't know. Uh, it's And distortion means you uh, we uh, use our resources, our creativity for things that will turn out to be wrong decisions in mm. time and we will we'll realize oh god we wasted our lives mm. wasted the precious time we have on the planet for stupid pointless mm-hmm. stuff uh, and that's really the bad thing about everything going well you're so happy everything seems to work out for you but then you realize it was very superficial mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, the kind of things you went for it wasn't really a reality check a kind of se- settlement uh, right. uh, and, and, and that's the big danger in, in the business cycle uh, producing things that no one will care about mm-hmm. in the long run and not producing mm-hmm. things that really matter right. will really matter in, in the future uh, and the same as with cursive structures you'll have structures to just oh my god what a waste of people like sitting in palaces and then people doing yeah. stupid status stuff uh, for the plunderers it's interesting right. that they're both illusions mm-hmm. but they're both seemingly good right like the credit yep. expansion yes. everyone's getting rich yep. like lots of economic activity everything you put money in it goes up and then the long peace also yes. is good yeah. but they're both these delaminations from reality that yeah there's something yes. coming behind yes. it and unconsciously of course people realize that they go crazy that's why uh, within these very peaceful periods, it's like sometimes you have know, just some uh, something happens and people turn crazy. They all long for war because mm-hmm. they want reality. It's like, and we had them before the First World War. Mm-hmm. Everyone was eager. Yeah. All the young people, they felt like they're wasting their lives mm-hmm. and pointless games, uh, and they were eager for the reality of war. Mm-hmm. Really figuring out what it like. Uh, uh, and there's, there's a momentum that, that's carrying because it was coming from a peak of peace, peacefulness, yeah. parent productivity, but it was too distorted uh, already. Mm. It's eerily similar to where we are today, actually. It sounds like a lot of people are not finding purpose in life, and there might be that itch for uh, the reconciliation, I guess. 
you go on to write this, which I have a question about. This follows the last excerpt. You wrote, in contrast, a maximum willingness to evade would require the highest degree of violence for coercive exchange. Every threat would immediately be checked for its quote-unquote backing, and the quote-unquote demand for bads would be reduced to a minimum because the potential quote-unquote buyers preferred to risk the bad. A maximum willingness to evade may have two reasons. A maximum distrust in threats and or an absolute firmness with one's regard to one's principles, whereby one would risk everything in order to avoid giving up one's principles and values. So my question is, is something like Bitcoin increasing these quote-unquote consumers, which are basically the victims, their ability to evade by lowering the cost of evasion, or maybe saying this a different way, uh, decreasing the validity of threats since it would be harder to steal, right? Like the kid, the bully coming to get the kid's lunch money. Well, if the kid's lunch money is in Bitcoin and a multi-sig, the kid's going to be like, okay, dude, punch me. You're not going to get it. Does Bitcoin and or material incentives more broadly influence the amount of goods or bads uh, being produced? I mean, the way you formulate it was already perfect. I, I think it should be obvious to everyone. The answer is yes. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, obviously. Is it that simple, though? Is it? Is it? I, I wouldn't say it's deterministic, but is it that strong and that simple of an incentive? Is like just make things harder to steal, and people will be more productive and more peaceful and less violent. Yes, because we have that in the past. We can observe it in history, and it has happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, one way to avoid the plunder happening is, of course, uh, spatial diversification mm-hmm. and, and using monetary protocols that are easier to hide, easier to move. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an underrated reason for the precious metals emerging. They are really, uh, you can bury them and you don't destroy it, you don't change it, it won't react with anything mm-hmm. and no one will be able to find it uh, until, of course, you have the technology then, which wasn't mm-hmm. there yet at the time. You can smuggle uh, easily uh, and uh, of course uh, and then of course the, the merchant networks the mobility of capital the um, the whole old trade structures uh, that uh, just it doesn't make sense too much to, to plunder because you know it'll move it'll move away uh, and we've seen even like coercive specialists uh, uh, I, I just uh, uh, no, well, on the top of the head in Tabriz and in, in Western uh, Iran, uh, there was a ruler who would like break the promise uh, and, and a plunder uh, did once and then trade was disappeared. And he like tried to get the people back and, mm-hmm. and some came back, but he plundered again. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the whole like regions cut off. Uh, uh, because you go, don't go the, if you are mobile and uh, if you have alternative routes, you find alternative routes and this kind of networks. And some technologies provide networks uh, where you can avoid, uh, in the sense, to be attacked in just one place because it's physical and, and you have to have it with you. Uh-huh. Um, and of course, that's Bitcoin's role and that uh-huh. explains its adoption, its appeal. And its influence on structures potentially. I mean, it's still very early uh, mm-hmm. to say, but we can see in the past how 
these protocol technologies uh, have led to more catalytic outcomes and they've led to the immense flourishing uh, in the Western world uh, in particular, which was not only material flourishing, it was a cultural flourishing that was made possible due to those technologies. It's amazing to think that it could really be that simple, right? Just give people a more concealable, portable form of purchasing power and all of a sudden you cultivate more peace or productivity. Um, I, I would think a Bitcoin critic would say we're myopic or overly simplistic about the matter. Um, but it it does seem, I mean, I'm sure there's multiple leverage points, right? Like you can also, I don't know, get people to adopt certain ideologies or religion perhaps that can help toward that end. But it, nothing seems more reliable than just a hard material incentive. Yes. It's like people are just mostly in general going to follow that mm-hmm. um, because we're all animals, right? And we live in a Darwinian world and we all want to progress towards satisfying our wants and all of that. Um, it's not really because we are that materialistic in a sense, but the material is the final reality check. It mm-hmm. determines if you're alive or dead. Right. It's a material thing uh, in, in in the end. And the food, food shelter. Out. Yeah. Yeah. One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things, such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world. My thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials, and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Now, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. 
Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Okay, there's another excerpt here I want to read. You write that, and this is in regards to the business cycle itself. The, this distortion of interest rates is, on the one hand, a price intervention, and on the other hand, a deception. The lowered interest rate has a similar effect of a maximum price coercively set at a level below the market price. In this case, demand is higher than supply. The interest rate is the price for savings. The demand for savings, thus indebtedness, rises. The supply of real savings, which is the propensity to save, decreases. This would cause a supply gap if the created circulatory credit had not filled that gap. But since the circulatory credit is based on the assumption that bank deposits will not be withdrawn, it is a deception regarding the true extent of available savings. So we often like refer to, we'll say Bitcoin is truth, right? And fiat currency or fiat legislation, fiat more general is a lie. It's a deception. It's a threat, I guess. So maybe it's ambivalent whether it's, a, whether it's true or a lie. It's like if you don't abide by the fiat legislation, maybe there is a true threat behind that. But this, um, just focusing on the business cycle and the manipulation of interest rates occurring through fiat currency and central banking, does this mean that fiat currency is, like it's not just an analogy, it's actually a lie. It is an actual deception in the marketplace. Is that what you're getting at here? Yes, yes, but it can be like a shared deception and there it gets complicated. You have narratives uh, mm. and things, legitimacy, and then you don't go for reality checks. Uh, like you avoid that kind of settlements and you say, okay, uh, like <laughs> that's right. how things work. Uh, and uh, so I think great insight uh, comes from Guido Hilsmann, who tried yeah. to interpret the business cycle theory as a general theory of error cycles. Right. Like why we sometimes... Uh, make more errors collectively yeah. and how a strong reason is of course legitimacy of certain uh, actions and narratives that go with it uh, and then it's then it becomes harder to draw the line it, it's not a threat it's not really threat based but but those threat based systems play a role they need legitimacy as well yeah. uh, so of course there's an interrelation but it can uh, be that even without threats, uh, you can have deceptive uh, illusions uh, yes. that can happen. Usually, I mean, because due to the materiality of the world, the reality check usually mm-hmm. it ends it pretty soon. So you can, of course, collective illusions. People think that there's an erroneous causal correlation uh-huh. with something and doesn't turn out to be... Uh, correct. Uh, so, so it's like uh, a combination. Uh, we air together, but we are also able at the time we are not airing. It seems like it's working out uh, 
uh, and it's working out well. Uh, so it's a kind of, of interplay between an intervention and a deception. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not so, uh, so easy to always pinpoint. Uh, and of course, people are very different. So to a different degree, they make use of something and mm-hmm. or don't understand it and use it or use it and it works out for a while. Mm-hmm. So it may even work out in the end for those that are I mean, every Ponzi scheme, uh, right. of course, it, it can be a joint uh, illusion, but you'll have people that are early in and, and even they like can believe consciously that that's, that's correct. It works out for them right. and, and uh, it's fine and uh, it's no deception. Um, and it, and it work, can actually work out for those, work just out. like fiat currency if works out. never settlement, if there's yeah. never relationship, it can actually work. That's the thing about Ponzi structures. Here's the other, okay, so... Maybe we can conclude on this. I didn't get very far in the paper. It's really good. It's not that long. I encourage everyone to read it, 15 pages. Um, it just added a lot of theoretical structure to like reading a book like Atlas Shrugged. Mm-hmm. You get this nice fictional tale about all these things, but this gives it some real um, like, theoretical structure, I guess. We're talking about illusions, you know, delusions, narrative, like... Some of some things only exist to the extent that we act as if they exist, right? Mm-hmm. The common example I like to give is something like the calendar. It's like that's how we coordinate our physical presence in time and space. You know, meet me at the restaurant at nine thirty. That assumes we're both using the same sort of mm-hmm. fiction, right, to meet at that place at that time. Um, at that time, in the case of the calendar, these. Um, not a deception, these illusions, these enacted um, institutions perhaps is a word for this, I'm not sure, they're not necessarily bad, right? Because isn't even private property itself, it's like we're, it's only as real as if we act as if it exists, right? If we don't, if there's not some moral intuition or ethical, um, ethical intuition perhaps about you keeping what you earn justly earn and I keep what I justly earn, then society doesn't work so well. Like we need these collective narratives to wire us together. Yeah, I, I disagree there. I think it's a bad analogy. I think Yuval Harari uses that a lot. Like okay. he assumes that it's all the same category of phenomena. Like everything that's mental as a mental model mm-hmm. is an illusion. And it's more or less it's the same category, mm-hmm. uh, and I I don't think that's correct because. So what what is, what is private property then? All right, we call it an uh, institution, it, but what yes, is it? it's a rule that we discovered to work, uh, mm. to like society is based on private property, and then the more important thing is the responsibility of the property owner, the limitation of responsibility. Mm. Uh, it's a rule that works. Um, uh, in a sense, like those societies don't disappear earlier than other societies mm. and those societies tend to have more material flourishing uh, and then also more technological capacity uh, as well. It doesn't say that it's the only rule and, mm-hmm. and there are no alternatives, but I think the down-to-earth approach is always, okay, did you just make it up? Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you can have your own calendar thing and mm-hmm. and then uh, it's that's not at all useful. It's like waste of just sure. trying to come up with your own calendar. 
having a matching calendar, yeah, of course, it makes use of something in reality. It's like uh, mm-hmm. it's not the movement of, of planets, uh, mm-hmm. and and uh, we can observe it, and we can agree on it, uh, and and figure out that now it's just a reference frame. And then it's a discovery is the useful reference frame, and there's a lot of things. It's not just technology that that uh, are network effects, like other people using it as the yeah. main ingredient uh, to some network goods, but it's real. It's really increasing its utility. Right. If an illusion is like lots of people sharing it, does not increase the utility right, right, other right. than just one need and that's the belonging need. It's like, of right. course, it feels good, like lots of yeah. people sharing your illusion. Yeah. That's a need, that's consumption, right. that's okay. But it's not a tool for something else, not a furtherance for something else. And the price, usually, it's too high. I mean, there are inconsequential illusions, like right. sharing the same fantasy world. That's fine, uh, right. probably. Uh, but but if it comes at the cost of something else, uh, and there I'd really distinguish, like, an illusion is a wrong causal correlation or a, thought, a wrong thought about a causal correlation mm. in the real world. It's not really that way. Right. Can you you can believe as much as you like that if you jump out of the window, you'd be able to fly without right. any technology. Right. Doesn't matter. You have a reality check, uh, and of course, I mean, we shouldn't forbid people try out and have uh, illusions, and we can't tell beforehand. We are not yeah. knowing that uh, maybe you coming up with a calendar can be useful for other people, uh, but it's an intersubjective discovery. Uh, and then, of course, that can be an institution. That's a discovery process, like language, uh, yeah. like money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's not arbitrary. Uh, so I don't buy in like money is just the shared illusion. No, right. money is a useful mental concept with strong network effects. If it has no link to reality, if it doesn't work for right. uh, our needs, uh, it wouldn't help that we all share the same illusion, which is still, I mean, even in, if, you're not un- if you're unconscious about the reality checks there, uh, then we just disappear as a society. Right. Yes. So, so maybe it's more better described as social consensus or social capital, social technology, something like that. In the case it's, of it's part of technology. I mean, the technology is really the name for thinking about means to achieve our ends. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's even like language, software, money is a technology. But a vulnerability of social technologies, if we're going to use that term, is that other people might not play by those rules, right? So if we're engaged in the, mm-hmm. not the illusion, the social construction of private mm-hmm. property, mm-hmm. we always run the risk of other people coming in that don't respect it. So how do we, to manage that is cratics, like we have to have threats. If someone's going to violate our property, there need to be threats against them. Um, I, I don't think so. I think the level of threats really... I call it rela- the, the a, a law broad, is? protocol technology. I think, of course, that you need other people using the same protocol. Mm-hmm. This is like hard. You can say you can't say, okay, I respect private property on my lot, but you don't respect private property on the on the other one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like there was a certain agreement on the rails a structure, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, that's a discovery process. It's always frustrating and difficult to come up, and usually it's discovery and and. Uh, can be even like discovery of cultures that by chance figured it out and then you just copy it mm-hmm. you know okay why are we having so many conflicts and and the people are always moving rather away and they are not uh, really investing that much in in, in the plots uh, uh, and they go to another valley 
where people are better able to mm -hmm. cope with just a delimitation between neighbors and who is taking care of what. Uh, uh, so I, I don't think it always needs uh, critics. Uh, usually it's the easy solution of thinking, okay, every kind of protocol decision must be top down as the norms idea, mm -hmm. get it, norms top down. Uh, Hayek's uh, answer to that was we can have a cultural selection process of norms, uh, even if individually some norms are called a protocol decision, so I can individually uh, like try out something else because I always depend like with language as a mm -hmm. protocol decision. Uh, uh, but still we can have like some languages that replace other languages. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, and we even have within languages words repre replacing other words in a discovery process uh, what is useful in the long run uh, right. and useful not only objective as intersubjective uh, for our cooperation, communication, and of course for the end results it brings about uh, the world. The, the end results of cooperation, of course, is like the reality, does it help us? Well, are we cooperating yeah. for? Uh, sure, sure, are we sure. able to better flourish to achieve our ends uh, uh, in a better way and and that's how usually you tell by the fruits yes uh, yes yes you'll know the know the tree by its fruits right? okay so last question on this then mr kinsella you know mr kinsella mm -hmm. yeah he was on the show and uh one thing he said to me is that the entirety of the rule of law grounds out or exist to serve the institution of private property. You know, there's an adage in the U.S. that possession is nine tenths of the law. He's saying actually it's ten tenths of the mm -hmm. law. At all, it's all about property. Is the rule of law not that? Doesn't it have that cratic element to it, where it's like if you steal my stuff or you violate my property, these are the threats or the penalties or um, threats or penalties that will be wielded against you? Is that a cratic? structure built into society to preserve the market structure, the catalactic structure? Uh, I don't think we can depend on that because if we depended on that, we wouldn't have a society. If I depended uh, for our cooperation only on the threat, uh, then probably I don't need the cooperation in the first place. So uh, mm. conflicts are always the exceptions. Uh, and then, uh, of course, you figure out what do you do in case of conflict, uh, contractual uh, laws and execution of contracts. Of course, it seems always easier. They have like, but usually it's like you have a credit structure in place and it's mm -hmm. okay, let's just use that uh, for the execution. Uh, mm -hmm. But then it serves as legitimization of the whole credit structure. Which doesn't make sense. I mean, we find a way to contractually cooperate, mm -hmm. and now we have this huge structure of non-contractual cooperation just mm -hmm. to make us be able to cooperate contractually. It doesn't mm -hmm. make sense, and that's not how it happened. Usually, the, the we need to have a culture of cooperation. I need you and to have discovered, or your ancestors to have discovered that cooperation takes certain protocols uh, that you should hold your promises. For example. Mm -hmm. uh, and people will cooperate more with you if you <laughs> fulfill your, mm -hmm. your promises and stuff like that. It, it seems fairly easy in hindsight, but it's not obvious uh, uh, in the beginning. Uh, so all kind of uh, productive surroundings depend on most people spontaneously uh, being able to cooperate. And not, if you needed threats to make people cooperate, mm -hmm. it's already a failed society mm -hmm. because it's so costly. And then you just you go away. Usually it's like, okay, yeah. I'm not like we 
won't have a make contract and I now pay a guy to hold a gun to you to mm-hmm. execute a contract. Doesn't make sense. Uh, of course, if you have this kind of threat structure, but usually it's not like, uh, I mean, in societies where people think they have a strong rule of law, mm-hmm. uh, in Western societies, it's not that the amount of threat is so high. It's not that the typical German is so afraid that the police will show up that he's cooperating mm-hmm. just in his nature. As a cultural process, uh, of course, he thinks about the other people who won't cooperate because, uh, but it just doesn't make sense if you make a reality check. Like, is it really that, that way with those people that you are just imagining about? Uh, you won't cooperate in the first place and they have no value to provide, so you won't contract with them. Mm. And it's a question, okay, where are they coming from? How are they supporting themselves? Uh, what's their model? What's the norms there? Uh-huh. Uh, and then usually it's like... Um, not so nice reality check that you get there, but that you see that actually the credit structures that are there to protect you are actually inviting uh, in this kind of violation of mm-hmm. norms and are producing them uh, and are helping and supporting uh, that kind of bad behavior and production of bads and threats uh, and are actually protecting them from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's usually the case. So if you make real the reality check, you figure out now what it can't be the way cooperation emerged that we were afraid of the consequences of not cooperating. Right. It just doesn't make sense anthropologically uh, and economically. It doesn't make sense. Uh, still, I mean, there can be a component. I mean, can be a side effect. You have... Uh, uh, a structure of, of policing, uh, let's call it. Yeah. And sometimes, of course, the police goes for the criminals, uh, but I, I don't think it's a direct causation uh, there. It's not because we have the police, there are so few criminals right, right, right. as we have so criminals. Thus, we have the illusion that's with the police we have and the means that's invested in that they can make sure we are so safe. Uh, so we are now in Switzerland. Of course, Switzerland right. is not so safe because they have the strongest police force right. um, in the world. It's like a cultural process. Um, and then usually like the threat level that may be rising in parts of Western Europe is all to theocratic structures that have outlived the usefulness, mm. are not sustainable. They work with bluffs, like keep mm. the most obedient people threatened so mm-hmm. that they don't speak up mm-hmm. and they go along and still cooperate uh, and give up uh, all their wealth in exchange for an illusion basically mm. of guaranteed safety which was a cultural process of it emerging it's fascinating and definitely opens up a whole nother side of the world of human action i think just thinking through some of this stuff uh, you know having read Mises and Rothbard and Hayek, they're very focused on the catalactics, uh, but the cratics seem equally important to consider. Uh, again, the paper is The Praxeology of Coercion, A New Theory of Violent Cycles. And then what was the first paper? It was called The Praxeology of Coercion. Yeah. Um, and it has some subtitle, I, I think, but I, I don't even remember when I wrote those papers. Like, they're fairly old, <laughs> eight, eight, nine years ago, something like that. Yeah, I only discovered it recently. It says winter 2016 when it was published. So it's been a little while. Um, well, I appreciate you stopping by to talk with me about this. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, follow me on Twitter, scholarium underscore AT, or I have a website, scholarium.at. Raheem, thank you, man. It was a pleasure.